In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Some people are born to be entrepreneurs and they're energized by building new businesses. Welcome to this edition of Money Tales. Sandy here, and today our guest, Dan Allison, is an entrepreneur writ large. He's made it to the top of the mountain a couple of times, and Dan's realized that for him, it's the view of the peak from the valley that really charges him up. This is Cammie. I met Dan when he was up on stage inspiring people with his stories of business success. Dan's so energetic and passionate about what he does that I'm not surprised to learn in our conversation that he'll never retire. As we talk, Dan shares his remarkable story of striking it big with his first business early in life. He talks about what he's learned about money along the way and what happened when he deviated from his values. Compounding is a topic that comes up in the discussion, so we explore it further in the financial insight that we've included for you after the interview. But first, here's our conversation with Dan Allison. Welcome, Dan, to Money Tales. Thanks again for making time for us today. And if it's okay with you, we'd like to start with a kind of a a question to warm things up that is basically tell us your life journey. But no, really, in all seriousness, a brief summary of your journey and what got you to this moment. Oh my God, what? A brief summary? (laughs) You know better than that, Cammy. I will do the best that I can do. My background originally, I went to college with a passion for children who had mental health issues, specifically bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. So I went to college, undergrad, grad school for clinical psychology. I started a company in Nebraska originally with the goal of taking kids out of large hospitals where traditionally, if they were so difficult, they couldn't live at home. They had to live in those kind of environments. My passion was to shut those hospitals down and bring them into environments that were more normal, even if they couldn't live with their families. So I started a company like that. We ended up growing to the point, I think we employed 550 people. We sold the company and then had a non-compete clause and started giving speeches around the world about the psychology of finance uh, because I also studied that but I couldn't be in my old industry. So I chose the finance industry to go into. So that's the shortest version. There's a million variables in there though. That's great. I'm just curious, what got you interested? You said you had a passion for children with mental health issues. A lot of people would probably be very vague answering that very specifically. I grew up, my mother, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but she left high school when she was 13 years old. Well, left junior high, never went to high school. My father got kicked out of high school because he had a mohawk and he was at a Catholic school, so they kicked him out. 
So I had parents that never had any level of education, but they started uh, the entrepreneurial spirit. They started daycare centers in the small town that I grew up in. They ended up having two centers with 100 kids in each one, so pretty large facilities. And so I grew up in them as a, you know, somebody who they didn't want to pay for care for me during the day. But then when I was 14, I was qualified to work there legally. And I worked there. I was just, and there were certain kids that had behavior that I, you know, everybody would give them a timeout because of their behavior. And the timeout was never going to fix the problem. They had a condition that had nothing, they weren't in control of their own behavior. And I was just fascinated by those kids and the motivation and how I felt at a really young age, I could develop programs that would manipulate their behavior to be more positive so they wouldn't have to be in timeout. So when I went to college, I thought I wanted to be a special ed teacher originally. And then I learned that there's facilities all over the world for these kids that are not in the school system, but when they leave the school where they live. And I just wanted to be part of making their life more rewarding outside of the school system and outside of a hospital. Thank you. That's a phenomenal. Really young age, I just had a passion. Love it. Thanks. So I'm really curious to hear about starting this business in college, but before we go there, tell us, Dan, more about your childhood and specifically how money played a role in, the, in your childhood. I have a really unique upbringing in that my father, who is still alive, he's 82 years old right now. But my father, when he was very young, he toured with the Grand Ole Opry as a musician. So he was a singer and he toured with Johnny Cash and George Jones and Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly and all the, all the legends of country music. And back then rock music was kind of intertwined. And so apparently before I was born, my mom and dad got married when they were 18 years old. My mom told him, look, that life long-term is not going to work for me. And he did it for quite a while longer. But eventually she gave him an ultimatum that you're not going to tour around in a car with all these guys who do what they did on the road that anybody could guess what they all did. So they settled down in a small town in Nebraska where my mom was from. They had me and I was born. They were 42, I think, when they had me, 41 years old. So I was the legitimate example of an accident. I have two older siblings that were the purposeful kids, and I was the whoops kid, and I got treated like the whoops kid. So I grew up completely independently. Mom and dad owned daycare centers and worked nonstop, and I just, they kind of left me to fend for myself, which at the point, I didn't realize how grateful I would be for that, but I loved it. And I think I told Cammie that when I was 17 years old was, for me, the defining moment of what I think will get into career-wise and, you know, being an entrepreneur and being independent. How do you grow what you want to grow and your passion? When I was 17, I graduated high school a year early. And my gift was a one-way bus ticket from Norfolk, Nebraska, which is a very small town, to Seattle, Washington. Because my sister, who was 20 years old at the time, had fallen in love with a man who was in the Navy that was stationed out there. So they gave me a one-way bus ticket. It took me 38 hours on a bus at 17 years old to go out. And my objective was I had to bring my sister back. And she wasn't ready to come back. So I lived for three months on my own at 17 years old. 
in the middle of nowhere. I worked construction. I'd never used a hammer in my life. And finally, they broke up, and I got her car and ended up having to drive her back just in time to get to college. So that's how my childhood went. Wow. So it sounds like everything you learned, you were mostly learning on your own, but maybe getting some modeling from your parents about building a business. Yeah, it's very easy to look back. I've always said to my wife or anybody who will listen, there's very fine line between neglect and great like inspiration and leadership. And what they were doing is living the example, you know, with no education and just grinding it out. My dad had an amazing career that he could have pursued in the, in the music world. And he, with her, chose not to do that. But they grinded it out and figured it out. So I just watched them. And it took me a lot of years to realize the impact that had on me for being independent and just trying to figure it out. Because on the surface, it's like, well, your, your parents leave you alone nonstop. And, you know, that's not healthy. It was like, that was the healthiest thing they could have done for somebody like me. So were you at that time thinking about figuring it out financially? What was driving the figuring it out? Is it having fun, growing? What was it? I don't feel like I had motivation to accomplish anything because financially we were very, even though they owned companies and things like that, and they gave me a great upbringing, but I definitely was not financially. I'd never been on an airplane until I was 21, 22 years old. We didn't take vacations or have nice things. So I didn't have any kind of financial motivation, but I did have the motivation that I never understood the, the employee mentality just for me. I always felt like an entrepreneur. I felt like somebody who, you know, I want to go when I want to go. I want to leave when I want to leave. I want to fail on my own. I want to succeed on my own. I always just felt like that when I was young and I was just passionate about reading books about things that inspired me and learning about the world, even though I can see the world at that point. So I just, I have always had a curiosity about people who aren't like me, things that aren't relevant daily in my life, just to broaden my horizons. But at that point, I didn't feel I'd ever see any of those things. I just wanted to learn about it. Okay. So you're driving with your sister from Seattle back to Nebraska. You're going off to college. Insane. How do you decide that you want to start a business while you're in college? So, first of all, I wish we would have had a, a video crew with us from Seattle back to Nebraska because I'm certain people listening to this remember the days where you actually had a map and not a phone that just said, you know, go left, go right. So, I, I never had an actual map before. So, I bought a map. So, it took us probably three times longer than it should have to get home. And I finally delivered the package, as my mom would tell you. I delivered the package safely. And then she said, now it's time to go to college. And my mom and dad didn't drive me to college and have the send-off, you know, the hug and the cry. I drove myself to college. They were like, good luck. And when I got there, I told the counselor that I met with that I really had a passion for kids with special needs. And I thought I wanted to be a teacher. So I pursued that initially. And within six months, my roommate in college came back to me and he had a job, which I'd had jobs my entire life from detasseling when I was 12, you know, to working with at my mom's daycare when I was 14. I'd never not had a job. And he said he got paid money to go to these group homes and take kids like to movies and to the mall and like all the kind of stuff you would want to do anyway, but you get to do it with these kids. 
And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to go do that. So I went and I applied for a job and it was five twenty-five an hour minimum wage back then, which I'm sure a lot of people listening remember what when I was young, it was $3, but it was five twenty-five. And the CEO interviewed me at the time and he said, you know, in five years, where do you want to be? And I said, I want to be in your chair. I want to be on the other side of this desk running a company. But right now I'm trying to feel out my life and I don't know if I want to be a teacher. So I went to school full time. I worked full time. And this company was a nonprofit that had group homes for these kids with disabilities. And by the time I think I was maybe 22 years old, I had become the chief of operations of the company. So we only had, you know, we had like 150 staff. So not a, not a huge company, but I had worked my way up and proven myself. And at that point, I saw these hospitals that I mentioned earlier, where they housed these children that I did not feel were treated the way they deserved to be treated. It was very expensive for the taxpayers. So I presented a business model to the governor of Nebraska, how I believe we could take the kids out of the hospital, we can put them in the community, keep the people safe, improve everything. Uh, but I said, I want to do it as a for-profit because I had run a nonprofit. I had been very successful as the, the COO of that company, taking it from losing money to a net profit of maybe 150 grand a month. But as a nonprofit, all that money, you know, you just keep pouring it back in the company. And I thought, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing incredible things for people but also financially benefiting and then deciding personally where to donate your money. So I told them I wanted to start the operation as a for-profit and be held to all the standards of a nonprofit. And he gave me a, a pilot project in Nebraska to start it. I went and took out a $10,000 line of credit from Wells Fargo. I hired my first employee and rented my first little tiny group home and started there. And I lived in the group home pretty much for several months, just all day, every day, slept there. I was staff number one with the other guy and just figured it out from there. And so tell us about getting that $10,000 loan. Oh, that was a lot of money. I wanted to go buy a $9,000 watch and figure out what to do with the thousand. It was, I had figured out that, you know, rent, my family was very thrifty with money. My mom was always wanted to make sure our college was completely paid for she gave us a little bit of money every week. They were very, while we were middle class, I would say, they were very cautious about teaching us the idea of never spend more than you make. But not only that, make sure that don't spend what you make. Forget being upside down. Make sure that you're always cautious to live well beneath your means. So to me, that was the first time that I ever had a check like that and debt that I knew that wasn't my money. That was the bank's money. So I was beholden to the bank. So I was, I will never forget that day or the day I sold the company, which is a different story. But I took it to the bank and I was so thrifty with that 10 grand to start my first little facility and, and expand from that moment in the same way. So I never changed. I'm 45 now. So that was 23 years ago, maybe. I've behaved the exact same way my entire life because that's how my mom and dad were and that's how I will always be. It's great that you mentioned that. Just There's so much that we learn from our parents and other adults that they role model for us. And it's quite common in our experience for people to pick that up. Um, and it's great to hear you share that in a very positive way. They taught me by modeling. They didn't teach me by 
I'm going to force you to learn this because my brother and sister who are amazing people, but they don't have any entrepreneurial spirit. That's not what they want for them. My brother's an awesome school teacher. My sister is an amazing employee for a company, but they didn't get that spark that when I saw what mom and dad were doing, I wanted that. So it's cool that they never formally taught it. I just observed it. That's great. Dan, you already alluded to the fact that you had this business's vision, but you've ultimately, you sell it somewhere. Can you tell us about that decision and how you got there? We had grown the company. You know, I was employee number one. I had a partner who was a little bit older than I was at that time. Well, I was only 23. So he was (laughs) older, meaning he was 29 at the time. And employee number one and number two, but within, I think, four years, we probably had 400 employees, 450 employees. So we had, by the time, I think we were in our fifth year in the business. In Nebraska, there were three large hospitals that housed kids and adults with these kind of special needs. And within four years, we had successfully closed two of them entirely. And they were a real hot, you know, six stories, large hospitals. So it, it, for the state of Nebraska, they, we saved a couple hundred million dollars a year of taxpayer money. By creating a more efficient model, we employed hundreds of people. And we had had offers to sell a few times. But both of us, we had such a passion for what we did. We didn't realize the value of the asset that we owned. We, to us, these were kids. They were families. And we knew our revenue, I think $20 million was our revenue, 20 million bucks of revenue was our fourth year in business, all organic. We didn't acquire any, all organic growth. So we knew we had done something special, but we didn't appreciate somebody wanting to buy us to us was like buying all these kids and relationships. We weren't interested. And then the fifth year that we owned it, we got to the 500 plus employee mark. And it really became about really owning a company. So my days were about 401ks and lawsuits and things that were about running a business and not helping children. And then we had more offers coming in to buy. And finally, my partner said, somebody called one day and offered as the 800-pound gorilla in our industry, they did not have a presence in the Midwest and we dominated the Midwest. So they essentially said, look, we're going to write you a check for a lot more than it's worth because we don't want to compete with you in the Midwest. And it was kind of the lightning in a bottle. I was 27 years old at that point and couldn't believe that, you know, this little thing that we had a passion for had become a a legitimate company and really had changed the landscape of mental health services, not just in Nebraska, but the Midwest, which today that company is about a $120 million company based on the model we built. So I, felt at 27 years old, like a 70 year old based on my experience, because I was getting woken up, you know, three in the morning, three days a week, because an emergency was breaking out at one of our facilities, because one of our kids had an episode, you know, it, it was a rough five years, emotionally, but also a great five years emotionally. So when we finally got an offer that for him, he retired, my partner who passed away also, two years ago. For him, it was, he was like, I'm out. Even though he was young, he said, I'm done. I'm retired. I was 27 and thought, well, I'm not even close, but it was a good deal for us. Did you have to continue to work in the business as part of the sale or was it just a clean walk away? 
there's a clean walk. So we had an off, the offer was, there were several different offers they gave. One was straight out, buy it, go away, you know, don't ever talk to us again type of offer. The second one was buy the business, but I would be able to retain the real estate. Because if you think of when I sold it, I think we had 70 locations that were brick and mortar. So they said, well, buy the business and lease back the real estate for 15 years, which, I mean, that's a a layup if you don't need the money to retire. And at 27, that was a good deal. And then the other one was, we're going to buy you, but you're going to come to work for us, which I was not at that point. Entrepreneurially, I, I just wasn't interested in that option. So I ended up selling and retaining all the real estate to lease back to them for 15 years. And you're 28 years old. Yeah, I'm 27 at the time. It was a good 27. Deal. Okay. I got to tell you, one of the funniest things ever is that at that point, me and all my buddies from college, we did a guy's trip every year to Las Vegas. And I did not believe that the sale of this thing was going to happen because it all seemed way too good to be true. And so we've been going through all the due diligence and it felt like it took for maybe a year, but felt like forever. And I got a, a call from my lawyer at the swimming pool at 27 years old in Las Vegas. And he said, Dan, the ink is dry and that we wired a million dollars to your checking account for the deposit. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I, was, I told him, dude, you should have waited at least three, four days to call me on this. So we, me and my boys went out and had a really great night in Vegas. But yeah, it, it was a, a whole different world after that. Cause, and obviously it was dream come true and all that kind of thing. But then after that is when you realize, okay, financially, I went from one place to a different place. And that's where your life really gets different. It's not the same anymore after that. Yeah, well, tell us about it, yeah. about that. As many tales, we're very interested. Yeah. Because this is a hard thing. I mean, it's, it is a dream, right? But it's hard to transition from one financial situation to a completely another one yeah. in a relatively short period of time. Tell you, Sandy, I have a coach right now that coaches me, and he's 29 years old, and he's smarter than I will ever be, and he's more ambitious than I ever was. And one of the things that he said to me is that, you know, he's working to get to where I've been. You know what I mean? To get to the, his comment was top of the mountain. And I told him that I would give anything to be knocked back down the mountain and start the climb over again. Because I feel like there's a couple of things with money. Number one, you will, well, everybody thinks, at least for me, I felt like what I was chasing was money and money represents freedom. And then you can buy all the cool things and then everybody knows you have money. And then you're, you know, that's a cool thing to have all the money. And then you get the money and you don't, the day I sold the company, I told my wife at the time, who we'd been married maybe two, three years at that point, I said, I'll finally never have to say yes to anything that I don't want to do because financially I have to do that. Right. And so a couple of things happened. Number one, I immediately fell into the trappings of stuff. You know what I, yeah, bought a couple of Maseratis and I had to have this car and that car and the, I immediately fell into all that stuff. And then I immediately said yes again, because I started other companies, because I'm not built to be somebody who, I'm not built to be retired. That's not who I'm built. So immediately the companies, it was like, yes, yes, yes. And next thing I know, I'm on a hundred airplanes a year, flying all over the world, like busy as ever, doing everything for money again. And what I really quickly, not quickly, it took me a little while, but 
it, for me, I realized that, like the money, it's terrifying when you finally have enough that you'll never really worry about paying your bills, whatever, even if you have scaled your life back a little bit or whatever. I had gotten to that point where I could have a big life, but I might have to produce more money to sustain that big life, or we could just have a pretty modest life and I would do nothing forever. And then you realize that the whole time you weren't chasing money at all. It's terrifying when you get that moment and you don't feel the fulfillment that you thought you were, the happiness that you thought you were chasing isn't any of that stuff. So you were chasing the money, but you realize it was really chasing the happiness and the bottom of that mountain again? Yeah, I was chasing the money and I caught it. You know what I mean? When you yeah. Forever you catch it and then you're like, yes. You look at the money and think, hold on, I want to let it go again. Because the chase to me was way more fun. It truly was just being hungry and passionate and believing in the difference I knew we were making in that industry. And then we sold it for dollar signs, which a lot of people do, right? But then that void that that left in my life of waking up every day thinking, well, hold on. I have that void again now, the feeling, and the money doesn't fill that void. That was very hard for me. It still is to this day. Like I think back continually. What if I never sold it? What if I kept it? And nobody knows the answer to that question. But it was a really weird thing in your 20s to deal with because it wasn't like I was a tech billionaire. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was enough money to be like, holy cow, that's a lot of money for somebody who's even 50 years old. But to be empty that young and think, oh my God, did I peak at 27 years old? It's a terrifying feeling. How are you working through all of this? Daily. I'm not. <laughs> I don't. You know, I started. You were married to your wife at the time. Right. If this is happening. Were you guys talking about this and, and working through it together? Or No. I'm not that guy. I keep it all inside. That's just who I am. The greatest mental health people on earth are the sickest mental health patients on earth. I am the poster child for that. So I keep it all inside and I don't talk to anybody about it. And I thought I would fill that feeling by putting my head down and working again. It's something I could be passionate about, which is where I entered the finance industry. So I started to apply clinical psychology to the finance industry, which started taking me around to give speeches all over the world. So I think that void, it was so short and I filled it falsely with activity. Again, you know what I mean? Make more money, stay busy, get back out. And I don't think, I'm just terrified of the day when the brakes go on really and I have to sit for a week and not do anything. <laughs> like I'm not going to golf five days a week. Dan, I get the feeling those brakes will never happen I for you. Not, not, yeah, I, hope the, I hope the brakes hit when the train hits me. You've built now the second business and you're in a new place today. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so I ended up, when I sold my first company, I bought another company that was in the finance industry because I assumed naturally at 27 years old that everything I touched would turn into gold because it's that easy. <laughs> it seemed that easy the first time that I ended up buying a, a company in the finance industry that I completely did not understand the industry or anything. I just thought that because I was part of it, it would be incredible, which was absolutely false. But I did start to learn financial advisors were the client of my company. So people, Cammy, like the people who work for Experian, were my client. And I met so many people that 
were salespeople that truly were not in it to be helpful to their client. They just wanted to sell a product and whatever it was, whether life insurance or an annuity, whatever it was, and they wanted to move on to the next client. And then I saw this evolving part of the industry, but at that, which at that point was very small, which was a fiduciary model, meaning firms that wake up every day and their number one thought is, does not matter what product, what company, it does not matter, whatever's best for that client, we're gonna provide that. That became my passion to find those people and try to figure out how do I help them build that model, which to me as a consumer of your industry, I didn't know was out there at that time. I'd been sold products from the other people before. I'd never seen a model like that before. So to me, I was passionate about how do I help them get their model out there. And the only way to do that was that they wanted the clients they already had to tell other people that they care about, hey, you should talk to my advisor. You know, you should get the help of my firm or my advisor, but that didn't happen a lot. So I, 17 years ago is when I started, I started conducting focus groups with those clients, the clients of companies like yours, to try to learn behaviorally and psychologically, why do people refer, why do they not refer? So originally it started because I bought a company, which by the way, ultimately went bankrupt, the company I bought. But in the process, I learned from the consumer their behavior and began to, to teach advisors, hey, here's maybe how you ought to be talking to your clients and serving them. And 17 years later, now that had evolved into a consulting company. And I've been blessed to speak everywhere in the world about that topic. So it, I was able to find clinical psychology in a different industry. So Dan, you're a very purpose-driven person. And in, in we're hearing um, how the purpose motivates you and keeps you going. And it's not the money, but you have been financially successful. And we're curious to know, how does that translate into your current family life? Because now, in addition to being a son, you're a father and a husband. Tell us how you think about money and success in the context of your family and what lessons you may be passing on to your own children intentionally or otherwise? I can tell you initially, I feel that I completely screwed that up because I thought, well, now nobody has to worry about money. So now we all have money and there was no life lesson. It was just whatever you want, you can have. And I thought that was being a good father and a good husband, right? Provide for everybody. Oh, your kid wants those cool shoes that nobody else has. Get them for him. And it took me a long time to realize, a really long time. My, my son is 16. My other son is 13. And it's taken me a really long time to realize that not only is that not, to, for me, and, and everybody has their own opinion, but for me, that was not the parenting I received or what made me ambitious enough to do what I did, but it's actually counterproductive. So now it's more about, in psychology, we call money a secondary conditional reinforcement. And what that means is that money... Can I say that again? Secondary... Secondary conditional reinforcement. Okay. And what that means is the actual reinforcement. So the benefit of money is conditional and is secondary, the, the actual money. So if I give you a check for a million dollars and then I give Cami a check for a million dollars, that check, in theory, is the same amount of money 
But depending on your lives, your hopes, your dreams, your emotions, your discipline, it is so secondary to what that represents to you. So for some people that could represent my grandchildren will never pay for college. And because I didn't get to go to college, now they do. For somebody else, that means I'm going to go buy a, a Bugatti for a million dollars and that money's all gone on a car. So the actual money is so secondary to the emotion that makes us desire money. So what I try to teach, or what, and it, a life lesson that nobody ever taught me, is the idea of money and trying to have a healthy relationship with it. Because if you chase it, number one, you may never catch it. But if you do catch it, you will go through what I went through, which is, is that it? I went my whole life trying to find this and now I have it and I don't feel the fulfillment that I thought I would have. And there's a healthier relationship with money to me that is secondary. It's emotional. It's about what are you trying to achieve? But it starts with what does happiness look like to you? And how does money play a role in that? Not can They always say money can't buy you happiness, right? And I've always said, if you spend it the right way, I think it kind of can sometimes. I've done so many shallow things with money that I thought, well, that's going to make me happy. That's going to make my friends know how much money I, you know, all the, all the things, especially young, you do that are silly. And so I'm trying to make sure they don't repeat the same mistakes and they have a healthier idea of chasing money and what it means. Because like you guys, if you apply the miracle of compound interest to money and just tell somebody, look, I don't, you know, if you're 25 years old and you put 15% of what you make away forever, you know, you just do that. When you look at the, the miracle of compound interest, anybody can be a multimillionaire. I mean, anybody can. It's having the discipline to not chase the things that are secondary conditional reinforcement items that when you catch them, they didn't give you the fulfillment you're trying to find. So it's about, I, I feel like it's really healthy to talk to people about. One of my favorite questions that I ask is if a day in retirement for somebody, like if you look at the idea of retirement and you think about you finally got there, you have all the money you ever wanted and you're finally done with all the things you thought you were chasing your whole life, you know, 40 years and you're done. What is the perfect day? What happens in that day? And it's amazing how few people, number one, have ever thought about that. And number two, when they come back with, after thinking about that, the answers, how inexpensive a lot of their day is if they actually quit chasing and look back. But when you think you're chasing retirement and chasing things, it seems insurmountable. So like you look at my parents, you know, before my mom passed, they'd been married, I think, 61 years, I think. Got married at 18 and mom died at 80, so 62 years. But if you ask them a perfect day, it was going to the VFW together and on $3 pork chop night and having two cocktails that were a buck fifty a piece and getting a tab for 14 bucks. That was their perfect day in retirement. So if you spend your whole 60 years trying to be a multimillionaire only to find out that that is your idea of perfection, you cause yourself a heck of a lot of stress that was unnecessary. So I'm trying to instill those ideas with my kids. At first, you got to identify your why. What are you trying to accomplish? Who are you trying to make a difference for in your life? Whether that's a business that makes you a multimillionaire, but you made a difference, or volunteer work. Doesn't matter, but you got to identify that before you worry about how much money you can make. And so to dive into this a little further, how are you teaching this to your children? Are, are you guys having conversations? 
And is there pushback? And, and I want to dive into this because it is such a common thing among the clients we serve. Financial parenting, I think, is hard for everyone, regardless of what your resources are. But if there are a lot of resources, it can be difficult to navigate. Yeah. Sandy, I'll, I'll give you a t- Yesterday, I was out of town and I got a text from my son, my 16-year-old. And he said, hey, mom was gone. So this is how effective I am at teaching finance to my children. My 16-year-old texted me and said, hey, dad, mom's gone, but I took her credit card. I want to go buy school clothes. Is that cool? So that was the only, and I said, well, hold on. You know, we got to have some parameters. What does that mean? You know, what are you looking at? And all of a sudden, he sent me a picture and said, you know, this jacket's $85. Can I buy this? And I was like, well, this is not the way we're going to go about this. We've got to have a budget. We've got to have one of the items you need. So we had to push rewind. So nothing I've done, to be clear, has been perfection by a long stretch at all. And also, I think it's Sandy and Cammy, you know, it's important to acknowledge for me, a lot of the mistakes I've made financially have been out of, you know, being gone 150 days a year, traveling, giving speeches and consulting. And when you do that, you feel guilt. I mean, you feel like guilt of being gone. And a lot of times I would feel that guilt by, buy this, let's go have this. If I'm going to be with you 150 days a year and gone 150, those 150 days are going to be amazing. We're going to, so that also backfired on me. So I made a million mistakes. So when I intentionally talk to him about it, it's more about like my 13-year-old son always wants this video game or that thing, or I want to buy this on Apple. And so we have a chore list and understanding the value of work. Like what is a one task worth versus another task? And how do you make the highest and best use of your skill set? Like if you're very skilled at something, don't spend your time on the $1 chores. If you're good at the $5 chores, spend your time there. So we have those kind of conversations, but man, I'll tell you what, teenagers are really frustrating. It's somebody who understands clinical psychology better than I think most people in the world. I can't, I don't get teenagers. I'd love to understand these successes in such a young age and you've now just sold a second business. Has that impact your relationships with your friends, with your family? How, how does that play out? Well, I think also the came the financial success you get. and I'm sure it doesn't matter what age you are, if people perceive you as being wealthy and successful, you get frequently the phone calls that are, hey, you know, just calling to see how you're doing. Want to see if you want to get together for coffee. I want to pick your brain. You know, all those things where people have ideas, they want to find ways to to get your your talent or your money and things like that. And it really is. I, I really understand, you know, I live about a mile from Warren Buffett here in Omaha, you know, one of the, I don't know, top five wealthiest guys in the world. And I finally get why Warren drives around Omaha in the worst pickup truck you've ever seen in your life. And he lives in a house that is a total fire hazard. Like he doesn't need to impress anybody anymore, but also I guarantee you that when you quit trying to prove to people you're wealthy because you realize that backfires on you because then people want to be associated with you for that reason, or they selfishly want things for the, it really does shut you down to say that it's very important to be private about all this stuff because it does impact personal relationships and people come to you when they need help. And I feel like every charity on the planet that calls me, I got to help them. And I do. And that's, 
great, but also you can't sustain all that. You can't help everybody, you know. It, so it's very, it's a conflict for me. As you look forward in your life, after being at home, it sounds like maybe more than ever during this COVID situation, what is it that you're chasing? What's next for you? What are you up to? And also, what does a perfect day look like for you? Don't use my own questions. <laughs> I'm a consultant. I get paid to ask the questions. I can't answer them. I, Notice I, I did not say during I, retirement. I'm really trying to find a way to be have a massive impact in the financial industry specifically. So I want to be in that industry and have a massive impact so that unfortunately I've had a lot of the people who are closest to me pass away in the last couple of years. So both of my business partners, my mom, my father-in-law, just a lot, we've had a sequence of terrible things. And I've seen kind of the end result of what firms like Asperian do, right? The kind of planning you guys do and people who plan very well and had great advice and then people who did not. And unfortunately, people who were closest to me, a lot of them did not. So my passion is how do I have an impact on that outcome in a way that changes the end consumer's life is number one. I don't know what that means today. I have a couple ideas, but I have a non-disclosure agreement, so I can't share, <laughs> share with you what I'm working on. Uh, so that's number one. And to me, the perfect day, it literally would be sitting back and watching one of my staff win an award for like changing the industry that I was responsible for, but they're getting the credit for because they work harder than I do. I want to see uh, my team get acknowledged because I've spent the last 20 years on the stage and being the face of things. And I want the people that actually allow me to do that, to be the people to get the accolades. That'd be a great day for me. That's fantastic. Thanks. And Dan, is there anything in life that you haven't done yet that you want to do? <laughs> Each one of these questions could be an entire podcast. Yeah. So to me right now, there's a really good friend of mine named Phil Bland. And Phil was an executive in the finance world. He's 36 years old. He finally decided he, he called it the rat race. He felt like, you know, every day put on the suit and go do his thing. And he, he's single, you know, really good looking guy. He's just, you know, trying to figure life out. And one day he just said, you know, I kind of need a break. And he uh, packed up a backpack and he left for a year. And he went everywhere in the world with a backpack, everywhere. And he did everything. He climbed Kilimanjaro. He bungee jumped from the highest spot in the world, like all these things. So he's starting a company called Rat Race Rehab, which is where he'll take 10 to 12 people who feel that way for a couple of weeks to different destinations in the world that are not. Rich Carlton's, you're going to sleep in a hostel, you know, you're going to feel unsafe a lot of the time. So really, what I want to accomplish is experiences. When my mom passed away, I was really lucky to be the only person in the room with her for a couple of days. And the day that she passed, she passed at 1030 at night. And about three o'clock that afternoon was the last time she was really lucid and could talk. And I asked her if you could give me one piece of advice to live with forever, what would it be? And my mom told me that looking back, and keep in mind, this is an 80-year-old woman who had a really interesting life. She said, I don't regret anything I ever did, but I regret a lot of things that I did not do, that I wanted to do. So to me, this phase of my life is not about using money for stuff, but about using money 
for memories, experiences, whether they're selfish, just me. I went skydiving the first time this year, things like that. I, w- I want to use it for things that when I look on the bed that mom sat at at the end, knowing that was the day, which I hope I get the wherewithal to have that way to go out that you get to reflect. I want to reflect and I want to smile and think about the myriad of experiences that I have instead of all the stuff that I could afford. So to me, money represents that more than anything right now. That is beautiful. And what you said about your mom and what she told you is something that- Greatest advice ever, Cammie. Greatest advice, honestly, and something I'll remember. Can you just help us give us a place of time where you are right now at this moment? What gives you the most satisfaction in life? Oh man, just watching my two sons are at an age where I see my influence in them. I see my resemblance physically in them, where I know they're my children for sure, which that's cool to know. <laughs> you know, but but I see behaviorally um, them doing some of the things that make me proud that I was part of that. And nothing I don't think will ever satisfy me the way that knowing as a father you did your job thus far to make good humans. They're incredible little kids. They just and one well, little kids. They're bigger than I am. But that's it. Every day if I could have that, none of the other stuff will matter. Really well said. Thank you so much for this honest and, and truthful, insightful conversation about money and how it's played a role in your life and all the things that you hold most important. We really appreciate that, Dan. You're welcome, Sandy. I appreciate you guys asking. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Dan. Keep Bye. doing what you're doing. It's good work. Look forward to talking to you soon. Hi, Sandy here with the Money Tales Personal Finance Insight. During our conversation, Dan Allison discusses the power of compounding. And this is truly an important element that can help make or break a person's financial plan. If you're not familiar with the term, compounding is the exponential process by which financial assets and liabilities grow over time. Here's a simplistic example that involves some numbers, so stick with me for a minute. Let's say we have a million-dollar investment portfolio, and it grows by 8% per year. So in year one, it grows by $80,000, and now there's even more money, a million eighty thousand dollars to be exact, invested for growth in year two. If that amount grows by another 80% during year two, the annual return for year two will be $86,400. And this would be more than the $80,000 of growth during year one because we had more money. Remember, we have the million eighty thousand invested now rather than the original $1 million. So because of the compounding, the longer the portfolio is invested, the more opportunity it has to snowball in value over that time period. Be careful, though. The power of compounding can work against you if you don't pay down loans you take. The best example here are credit cards, which are subject to daily compounded interest when you carry a balance. And those interest rates are very high, usually between 15 and 20%. This means that if you don't pay the full balance of your credit card when the bill comes, the credit card company is calculating the interest charge every single day. So it's compounding in the wrong direction and the interest you'll have to pay will build up especially fast over time until you pay off the debt entirely. To tap into the power of compounding in your personal financial life, be sure to save early and often. And if you buy stuff on credit cards or take out loans, be sure you have the money available to pay them off on time. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. 
to subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.